When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition first articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II, that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My co-host, Elliot Cohen, is traveling, but we're lucky to have today two really terrific guests who have just published a book, Danger Zone, about the coming potential conflict with China. So I'm glad to welcome Hal Brands and Michael Beckley. Uh, Hal is my colleague at the School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., where he is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs. He's also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and a, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Michael Beckley is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts and a non-resident senior fellow at AEI. And he is also the author of a book I much admire, Unrivaled, about why the United States is going to remain the sole superpower. So Hal and Michael, welcome to both of you. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, this is a very timely conversation uh, since Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, has just managed to touch down and spend about 24 hours in Taiwan, uh, which has caused an awful lot of kerfluffle with the People's Republic of China, including some uh, additional flights into the air defense information zone of Taiwan and the declaration of all sorts of military exercises uh, around Taiwan and a prognosis of all sorts of serious consequences from the spokesperson of the Chinese foreign ministry, the, the People's Republic of China's foreign ministry. So uh, this is a great time to have this conversation, guys. Now, you believe in your book that we have hit peak China and that uh, China, which has been rising for the last 30 years or so, is now beginning to head into decline. President Clinton uh, once said that a weak China would be as big a threat to the United States as a strong China. And people have been predicting coming uh, slowdown or collapse of the Chinese economy for at least 20 years, if not longer. So explain to us what, what you all mean by peak China and what are the consequences of it for uh, U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific? Well, you, you know, China has been rising for so long that most people just assume its rise is like a constant of the international system. But a, a key point we try to make in the book is that 
the past 40 years of peace and impressive prosperity are sort of an anomaly in modern Chinese history. And that this exceptional rise, we think, was basically the result of exceptional circumstances that are rapidly disappearing. Uh, you had just a period, a long period of U.S. engagement with China and hyper-globalization, which gave China this opportunity to become the workshop of the world. You had a Chinese government that was willing to embrace some semblance of reform and opening. You had the greatest demographic dividend in history, where China had anywhere between 10 to 15 workers per elderly retiree in its population in the 1990s and 2000s. Most countries don't get anywhere close to five to one. And then you just had self-sufficiency in most resources and that easy access to raw materials made growth incredibly cheap for China. But now all these tailwinds are starting to become headwinds. And that's why we think it's time to start talking about the end of China's rise and what that means for the international system. And just to add to what Mike said, I think the the other dimension that's really important here is that one reason China was able to grow so rapidly in the 30 years after 1978, which is typically dated as the beginning of the reform and opening period, is that the outside world, and particularly the democratic world, was deeply committed to and invested in Chinese growth and, and the growth of Chinese power and diplomatic influence. This was the case with U.S. policy, certainly during the Cold War, when China was a tacit ally vis-a-vis -vis against the Soviet Union for the last 20 years of that conflict. And then during the period of engagement of China for about a quarter century after the end of the Cold War. And it's often been observed, and I think this is entirely true, that, that over that period, no country did more to assist China's rise than the United States. What's happened now, of course, is that th that condition no longer ob obtains. The United States has decided that China is its principal geopolitical rival, uh, and you're seeing more and more countries around the world become more and more skeptical of China's intentions and more and more worried about Chinese power. And so when Chinese leaders look out at the world, they no longer see a world that is, is welcoming and supportive of China's rise. They see a world that is increasingly primed to push back militarily, diplomatically, and economically. Well, I'm glad, Hal, you raised the issue of U.S. In engagement and the sort of phase of U.S. strategy towards China that it represented. We actually uh, talked, uh, Elliot and I did, in our last episode with Aaron Friedberg about, uh, about that, because uh, Aaron, of course, just published a book that sort of goes through the whole history of the engagement strategy and its, its failure and the difficulty people have had in accepting that it's, it's failed uh, with China. But given what both you and Michael have said, so if China is peaking and it's you know now running into as as Michael said headwinds uh, rather than tailwinds is that bad for the US uh, in the sense that uh, you've just discussed that we've decided it's our most important you know geopolitical competitor so you know maybe a little you know problems for China economically and at home is not such a bad thing well, it depends entirely on the timeline that you look at the question on. And so over a 30 to 40 year time horizon, yeah, in, in geopolitical terms, this is good news for the United States. And so one of the arguments that we make in this book and that Mike made in his prior book is that uh, all of the fears about China effortlessly overtaking the United States as the world's econ leading economic and military power are a bit overblown. That, that's almost certainly not going to happen, at least not on, any, on anything like the timeline that, that many people have predicted. In, in the near term, however, it could be more of a problem. And so this is where the history becomes relevant. If you look at 
number of past instances of great power rivalry, uh, revisionist powers, by which we mean countries that just wish the international system worked differently than, than it does today. They feel as though they're somehow slighted by the international system and want a bigger share of the goodies. Those countries often become most rash, most dangerous, not when they are deeply confident about the future, not when they think they're on an upward trajectory, but when they think that their power, particularly their economic power, has peaked uh, relative to their competitors and maybe about to decline. Because in many cases, during a period of ascent, their leaders have made great promises to the population uh, or to the, the selectorate and authoritarian regimes about what they can accomplish and how they can reorder the world to their liking. And they start to see that moment of opportunity begin to wane. And so there's often a temptation to act more boldly in the here and now to try to grab what gains one can before the window closes. You, you can see that in Germany's behavior prior to World War I. You can see it in Japan's behavior prior to World War II and in a variety of other cases uh, really over the past 150 years. And, and so a peaking power can actually be more militarily dangerous in the sense that's more aggressive than a country that still thinks time is on its side. So in some sense, this is like the flip side of the so-called Thucydides trap that Graham Allison has talked about, that rising powers are always bound to clash with one another. This is really a question of whether, as China faces its inevitable inability to match the United States, it tries to seize this window of opportunity. This is something how you and I and others who worked on the National Defense uh, strategy Commission uh, four years ago worried quite a bit about that it wasn't the long run that was the problem. It was sort of the medium run. And that's really, I think, what you and Michael are kind of talking about in this book. And, you know, going back to Mike's earlier book, this was probably a bad week to be taking the position that the U.S. is really in terminal decline, you know, a week in which we announced a $500 million package of additional military assistance, bringing it up to $8 billion for Ukraine attack on uh, Ayman Zawahiri, showing that the United States, after 20 years, if you blow up our buildings, we'll track you down and you know kill you. And, and in the face of all these Chinese threats, the U.S. Speaker of the House you know, flew into Taipei and flew out without um, any immediate terrible consequence. So how much do the Chinese really believe this you know, idea that we're in terminal decline? I mean, obviously, since 2008, eight nine in the Great Recession, they, they seem to have accepted this notion that the U.S. is in decline and they're inevitably rising. So how much have they processed of the fact that maybe this is not really working out the way they anticipated? I, I think there's sort of a duality. On the one hand, they, I still believe, think the United States is in decline, that the United States, they, they highlight the internal political chaos in the United States or um, uh, screw ups like the the way that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was conducted or even something like the war in Ukraine. You know, they're quick to point out that uh, the United States and its allies seem very scared about getting directly militarily involved and are uh, content to sort of arm from the sidelines. So there's that that perception that I think makes China sort of cocky on the international stage that this is their moment. They can make big moves right now. At the same time, they also are very well aware of a lot of the liabilities that their system has racked up internally, the economic slowdown, the increasing strategic pushback 
that China is getting, not just from the United States, but by countries really at every corner of the compass in Asia and even beyond where you even have Europe uh, starting to increasingly side against China. And so I think it's possible for them to both think that the United States is a shambolic mess, although albeit one armed with tremendously powerful capabilities, while also being worried about their own long-term trajectory. And to us, that actually makes China especially dangerous just because it does create those windows of opportunity where if they push hard enough or they punch the United States in the face hard enough, they can maybe get it to back down or to fold, um, but that they have to also move quickly because time isn't exactly on their side as trends currently stand. The issue about China not making a lot of friends around the world and actually creating a lot of enemies is interesting. I mean, Ed Lutfok talks about uh, Chinese uh, strategic autism, the the fact that they have taken any number of actions that have actually facilitated the U.S. operating from a position, I would say, of you know comparative advantage, which is our globe-girdling system of alliances, not just in East Asia, but in Europe as well. I mean, Michael and Hal, you both, I think, made the point that in the book, certainly, that you know China's approach to COVID is not exactly one it plaudits from countries either in the region or around the world. The so-called wolf warrior diplomacy did not go down well, I think, in Europe. I mean, the attempt to boycott Australia because Australia had the temerity to seek a investigation into the origins of COVID. I mean, that's something you point out in the book. I mean, all of that seems to have kind of made the alliances seeking to contain China uh, more robust. I mean, what is it about the Chinese that kind of makes them strategically autistic? I think part of it is geography. And, and so, you know, China has very interesting strategic geography. On, on the one hand, it has the advantages that come with being both a, a maritime and a continental power, but it also has a lot of the disadvantages. And one of those disadvantages is that when you are a great power that's situated within Eurasia, uh, if you become very powerful, if you become aggressive, you are an existential threat to the countries around you. And so over history, what we've often seen is that when would-be hegemons arise in Eurasia, they tend to get surrounded, cornered, and killed by their adversaries, often in partnership with the United States. And so this is you know, one of the oldest stories in the international system in, in one respect. But I think the nature of the Chinese system has a lot to do with it as as well. I mean, one of the things that we've seen increasingly over the past decade since Xi Jinping has been in charge is a China that is just increasingly insensitive to uh, the reactions that its own policies provoke, whether though that's the wolf warrior diplomacy, whether it is the crackdown in Hong Kong, the uh, the border disputes with India, the pressure on Taiwan. Uh, this is a regime that, that's become increasingly willing to push on multiple fronts at once and then occasionally seem surprised that it elicits more concerted pushback when it when it does that. And one of the interesting examples of this came in the fall of 2021 in, in a story that really wasn't picked up much in American media. There was a group of seven Democratic countries from Europe, North America, Australia uh, and Asia that conducted pretty significant naval exercises in the Philippine Sea, basically as a warning to, to China not to think that uh, it could impede freedom of navigation or that it could reorder the Western Pacific to its liking. And, and you're seeing more and more of these initiatives 
come together, whether it's the Quad or AUKUS or the deeper U.S.-Japan planning on how they might respond to a Taiwan contingency or the ways in which even relatively minor European states like the Czech Republic and Lithuania are taking an interest in the security of Taiwan, you're, you're getting into a place where China is facing pushback, not just locally or not just regionally, but even, even globally. Yeah, I, I think just to double down on the idea that the nature of the Chinese regime, I mean, dictatorships just generally don't do self-reflection all that well. They have to maintain this image of the all-knowing, all-powerful dictator. And no one has killed the messenger more than Xi Jinping. He has uh, investigated more than 3 million senior uh, CCP officials. 1.5 million have been punished, um, including people at the various highest levels. And so that obviously creates this sort of echo chamber and makes it hard for a dictator to get feedback. And just the nature of the Chinese system, what you often see is the government in Beijing will set some very ambitious target and then rely on underlings basically to carry those out, whether it's provincial governments or wings of the bureaucracy or the military. And they often are falling over themselves to try to meet that narrow target in any way possible to hell with whatever costs come along uh, along the way. And we've seen this from the disaster of the Great Leap Forward all the way up to the Wolf Warrior diplomacy today. And there's just so many, I mean, we could go into so many different examples, like just from 2021, in addition to the example Hal gave earlier that year in March, the United States and a few of its allies sanctioned, I think it was four Chinese officials over abuses in Xinjiang and China responded with this wolf warrior meltdown where they slapped sanctions on multiple European entities, uh, politicians, and that ended up causing the European Union to suspend its major investment treaty with China. So we've just, we're just seeing this over and over again. And at first it looks just astounding, the level of self-defeating policies by China. But when you get a better sense of how the Chinese system operates, the incentive structure that various people in the system have, it starts to make a bit more sense. So in your view, is conflict with, with China between the United States and China, you know, foreordained? Is this just inevitable? And we're just now waiting to see what will set it off? Or do you, do you see a way to prevent conflict from, from actually erupting? I, I don't think conflict is inevitable, but rivalry, I think, is certainly almost inevitable, for, especially for the next 10 or so years, which we call the danger zone, just because China already is displaying a lot of the nasty traits that you would expect from a peaking power. The the rapid military buildup, the slide to neo-totalitarianism, the attempt to essentially carve out an economic empire where its firms will have privileged access to markets and resources. A greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Yeah, yeah. You know, just these very uh, euphemistic terms. I mean, they call it the community of common destiny, which sounds very much like what the Japanese uh, were, were considering. Um, and so that's that's terrifying. And so I think just given that, I mean, China is at the end of the day, putting forward a fundamentally different way of life in term, in the international system, as well as a different relationship between the ruler and people within a society. And I think it, you know, we can maybe get into the, the ideological aspects of U.S.-China competition. I think those often go um, uh, underrepresented, but I think that's very much part and parcel of this because China at the end of the day is trying to construct an alternative world order that I think would be highly detrimental to the interests of the United States and its allies. Well, Mike, since you raised it, uh, let's go there because um, this is something that Hal has written about, including a couple of pieces he wrote with my colleague at CSBA, uh, Toshi Yoshihara. Um, this really goes into the whole question of uh, the ideological competition, political warfare. 
that China has been uh, waging, and Russia as well, for that matter, as you all acknowledge in the book. This is a little bit, I think, a, a issue that has been underplayed in the discussions in the United States. There's been a tendency, I think, particularly in the sinological community, to downplay this notion of uh, autocracy versus democracy or authoritarianism versus democracy, which the Biden administration has actually at least rhetorically uh, adopted as a, a framing mechanism. But I think in the sinological community, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but there's just an awful lot of, oh, that nobody believes in this. You know, it's already become a market, you know, largely a market society. You know, the ideology is uh, died off, uh, et cetera. That has become a little harder to sustain that point of view under Xi because he's very much become a kind of neo-Maoist. We, we had Jude Blanchett on the podcast a couple of months ago talking about uh, some of these ideological currents. But Hal, since you've written on this, how should Americans think about the ideological component of this? We're used to that component in the Cold War, which you've written about in other contexts. How should we think about it in, in the U.S.-China context? So the argument you sometimes hear from people who are skeptical of the idea that there's an ideological dimension of the contest is that the Chinese Communist Party isn't like the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which felt that it had an ideological compulsion to spread socialism to the ends of the earth. And that statement happens to be both true and 100% beside the point. And so the, the argument, I think, that the people who think that there is an ideological contest would make um, is, is really twofold. And so one is that it is the clash of different visions of domestic order within societies that drives a lot of the clashing visions of international order in the globe writ large. And, and so the fact that uh, China is an autocratic system, it's run in an autocratic way, means that the CCP will never be comfortable living in a world dominated by a democratic superpower because they recognize that in a world dominated by a democratic superpower where international norms you know, favor democratic rule and human rights, that, that's a world that is potentially lethal to the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, the CCP believes very strongly that we have been trying to overthrow that government since the day it was established in October 1949. And so the second part of this is that this means that when Xi Jinping thinks about the world that he wants to create, it is a world where autocracy, so not communism, not socialism, but autocracy is at the very least protected and perhaps privileged. China will be safer ideologically and geopolitically in a world where there are a larger number of autocratic systems and where democratic countries don't set the rules of the road. And so I think this helps explain why China is so often involved in shoring up autocrats under pressure, why it is so willing to instruct its fellow authoritarians in the techniques of repression and provide the tools of repression to regimes from Southeast Asia to Latin America. It's why China is so energetic about trying to rewrite the norms of international institutions, uh, bodies under the UN umbrella, essentially, that have to do with things like human rights, because this is a life or death issue for the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's trying to shape the world in a way that will be congenial to its continued rule at home. There's really nothing unusual about this, by the way. It's, it's what the Soviet Union did. It tried, the Soviet Union tried to create an international system that would be 
congenial to the survival of communism in the Soviet Union. It's what the United States has done. A lot of our foreign policy has been about trying to create a world that is safe for democracy. And so we shouldn't be at all surprised that the Chinese are doing something similar, albeit from a very different direction. Yeah, I think the motive is as classic as, you know, the concert of Europe helping colluding to crush the French Revolution. It's the age old battle. But I, I think, you know, we shouldn't also dismiss the the unique aspects of China's uh, offensive, because first of all, it does capitalize on a disturbing recent trend, namely the recession and democratic governments around the world, the number of democracies and just the quality of democracy eroding. So China's iron fist is knocking on an open door to some respect. And and second, and I think much more important, is just the nature of new digital technologies can make authoritarianism so much more efficient and effective before. I mean, the East Germans, the Nazis, the Soviets would have killed to have the kind of data collection and messaging power that China has collected through its tech companies and being able to funnel all of that data back to their governments and use speech and facial recognition technology to rapidly sort through images and get up perpetrators and to send subliminal messages through social media. I mean, it just, you know, and, the, and the, at the end of the day, these technologies not only enhance autocrats and their power, they also help make the trains run on time and improve infrastructure. And so it frees dictators from that age old uh, uh, dilemma that they used to have of having to either pay more for guns or pay more for butter. You know, you had to pick one or the other. Now they can kind of have both because these technologies are useful across many different domains, but really reinforce the hold and the surveillance capacity that authoritarian regimes have over their people. Yeah, I think this is a really important point that people sort of misunderstand. The minute you start talking about, you know, the ideological competition, people will throw up the argument that Hal mentioned, which is, no, they're not trying to spread Marxism-Leninism. They don't really believe in that. So it's less about the spread of Marxism-Leninism than it is about the discrediting of democracy and alternatives to uh, authoritarian rule. And uh, this this is what you all in the book label as democracy prevention, as opposed to our efforts at democracy promotion. And and this is, as, as you say, Mike, this is part of the democratic recession, the reversal of the so-called third wave of democratization that began in the early 80s and carried through Latin America, parts of Africa, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe. So in some sense, some sense the Chinese have sort of, uh, they're, they're kind of catching a bit of a wave. I mean, Hal, in one of his earlier books on the U.S. and the unipolar moment, talked about how the U.S. kind of capitalized on the third wave of democratization. Chinese are kind of surfing on the democracy recession now. How, how do we break out of that? How do we you know keep them from doing that? Well, I think one of the points we try to stress in the book is that because of the very issues we've talked about, th- you know, thinking about aggressive democracy promotion strategies is probably the wrong way to think about the challenge that we face right now. It's, it's more in the vein of democracy protection, protecting democracy where it exists now and, and waiting for another turn of the wheel until conditions become more favorable and perhaps it can advance again. And and there are a variety of of defensive measures that are associated with that. I mean, everything from revealing autocratic disinformation uh, more aggressively to um, trying to patch some of the holes in democratic information ecosystems that make penetration by the Russians or the Chinese more, more difficult. But there's also, frankly, going to be a more offensive component to this uh, battle to shape the political future of the world. And and so 
it's not that the United States and its allies should be trying to overthrow the government of China. I think that's probably pretty difficult to do and would be dangerous even if you could achieve it. But we do need to recognize that there's a political warfare battle ongoing right now and that you know unilateral disarmament is probably not the way to win it. And so there are a variety of, of ways of thinking about this. One has to do with the point that Mike made earlier, which is you can do sort of political cost imposition on the Chinese simply by pointing out the worst features of their own system and, and the way in which they fall short of the ideals that they, they claim to represent. And so that could be you know, uh, sanctioning officials involved in repression in Hong Kong or Xinjiang. It could be, you know, magnifying and disseminating news about the massive corruption that pervades the Chinese system. It could even involve some harder edged measures. And so I think one of the more interesting proposals that has been made is essentially one of finding ways of feeding adversarial inputs into China's political and social control systems, which rely on a combination of AI, facial recognition, and, and big data. Again, not with the idea that this is going to bring down the regime, but simply that it, it raises the cost and increase the difficulty of political repression within China as a way of evening out the playing field a little bit. There's going to be a need for more creative and more forward-leaning strategies along these lines, unless the United States wants to find itself constantly playing defense. I mean, so in that sense, the the campaign against Huawei, for instance, falls into this general category. I mean, you know, our UK colleagues uh, were, uh, for a moment there, you know, looked like they were willing to let Huawei in, and and thankfully, one of the more salutary accomplishments of the Trump administration was to uh, help help roll that back. And you know, I've pointed out that in the context of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, the fact that Ericsson and Nokia are headquartered in Finland and Sweden, they will now be part of, formally part of the Western alliance, uh, probably is not just helpful in the, you know, NATO-Russia context, but also because of the role they play in international telecommunications networking, uh, useful in the context of trying to block Chinese 5G domination uh, as well, which is something you talk about in the book, as well as international organizations where they're trying to set standards and things like that for these kinds of technologies. It's all part of, I think, what you're, you're talking about. Can you talk, uh, both of you, about what we can learn from the Cold War? You have a chapter in the book about what we can learn from the Cold War for this competition Several people have argued, uh, including Hal, our friend Mel Leffler, that uh, Cold War is an inappropriate analogy to use when thinking about the U.S.-China competition. But still, your earlier book that we talked about in the earlier podcast tries to learn some lessons from the Cold War. You try to do that in this book as well. Talk about specifically the lessons for thinking about competition with China. I'll, I'll take a crack at it. I mean, I, it probably won't come as any surprise to, to you, Eric, that I, I was the one who insisted on having Cold War lessons uh, in, in this book. For some reason, all of my analogies are Cold War analogies these days. But the I think the, the broader point is we kind of have to stop thinking about the Cold War as something that was uh, sui generis, uh, you know, completely unique in the history of great power rivalry because it wasn't. I mean, it had unique characteristics, but it is part of this longer run of great power competition over the stretch of history. And so it can teach us things about the nature of great power rivalry, about 
the nature of strategies that are, are needed to succeed in great power rivalry. And, and so that is the vein in which we look at it here, not arguing that it's exactly the same, but that it has some useful lessons. And in particular, if you look back at the beginning of the Cold War, I think there are some really interesting similarities between the strategic position of the United States and the Soviet Union, the strategic position of the United States and China today. We're even in the late 1940s, you know, American strategists, whether George Kennan or, or Harry Truman, had a fair amount of confidence that time would be on America's side in the long run, but there were danger zones. There were moments of severe vulnerability that the West had to cross just to, to get to the long run, whether that was the threat of just a, a collapse of Western Europe and the international system writ large in the late 1940s, or the, the military danger zone that emerged most notably following the North Korean invasion of South Korea and then China's intervention in the war uh, in late 1950. And so the United States had to put together a variety of strategies just to help it get through the immediate crisis and get to a longer competition in which its, its deeper inherent strengths uh, could help it prevail. And so there are, there are a handful of, of lessons, I think, that emerge from this period. But the one that I'll just mention is that you kind of have to be willing to use rough and ready solutions uh, and coalitions rather than waiting for perfect solutions and coalitions to materialize. And, and so in the late 1940s, American policymakers very much believed that there was an ideological nature to the competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And yet they were willing to work with autocrats, even communists uh, like Tito and Yugoslavia, to help check Soviet power in, in the here and now. Uh, we were willing to pull together coalitions that, that featured the countries that had just terrorized the entire world, uh, West Germany and Japan, because that was what was necessary to create a, a solid balance of power uh, and to create a shield behind which the free world could develop in, in the early Cold War. And a lot of the famous policies that we now look back on as, as triumphs of American strategy, and they were, were actually sort of jury-rigged solutions to immediate crises. You know, the Truman Doctrine was not something that was planned out months and months in advance. It was a policy that was put together over the space of about two weeks after the British told us that they were effectively withdrawing from the Eastern Mediterranean. The same goes with the Marshall Plan. The, the same goes with the creation of the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. And so there, there was a willingness to basically move fast, to try new things, and to not make the perfect the enemy of the good. And all of those characteristics will be very important today, albeit in a different context. I, I, yeah, so I obviously agree with, with Hal and his, his recent book, uh, The Twilight Struggle, really goes into depth about all the ways, the lessons that can be gleaned for the Cold War. And I agree with all of those. And so I, I'll just content myself to maybe say a few of the things that I think are different, namely that, you know, in the Cold War, the order that the United States built to wage that war was really one that could emphasize economic openness among its allies and partners to kind of build this resilient capitalist set of networks. But today, China has found ways to infiltrate that order and to prosper very well, to basically use to milk free markets for mercantilist gain. And so the Cold War certainly provides a lot of grand strategic guidance, but because we're still sort of living in the legacy of institutions that were built to fight and win the Cold War, which ended 30 years ago, I think another lesson that needs to be learned is now we need to revamp that system to take account of the unique aspects of the Chinese threat. And frankly, I think that's what the United States and its allies are sort of 
doing by emphasizing democracy. So they say, look, China has is, has adopted big parts of capitalism, but one thing they are definitely not is democratic. And we want to basically create an order that it makes the world safe for democracy, that emphasizes democratic values and standards and principles, and to recraft international institutions in a way that are conducive to that. That seems to me to be the way to go, um, but obviously the efforts right now are fledgling and really need a shot in the arm. So if we're in this danger zone, I want to ask both of you to talk a little bit, you've already talked about it to some degree, but kind of maybe in a little more systematic way, what, what do we do to get out of this danger zone and get, you know, as you put it in the book, to the other side? Not that, as you note in the book, getting to the other side means that the problem is over. You're still going to have a lot of issues to manage, but how do we get through this particular period of to borrow a phrase from Paul Nitze of maximum danger. And then to close out our discussion, I'm going to ask both of you to kind of grade out the Biden administration on how you think they've done in this area. You know, what have been the successes and what what remains to be done? And what, if any, failures have you seen? Yeah, I think the the most important lesson is to um, prevent China from scoring near-term victories that will radically upend the long-term trends, which we argue are basically in the United States's favor. So that includes most notably a smash and grab operation over Taiwan. If, if China can somehow consolidate its control over Taiwan, that would radically change the balance of power in East Asia. If China can carve out this emerging empire that it's trying to forge through the global South and use that not only to become the world's data broker, but to capture market share and ultimately become a dominant technological power in things like artificial intelligence, synthetic biology, that could also change the trajectories that we sketch out earlier in the book. If China can develop these digital authoritarian technologies, that could upend the balance of power between democracy and autocracy just as a way of life internationally. So these, so we argue that you have to focus, you have to prioritize ruthlessly, that you can't resist Chinese advances everywhere. Um, and you have to pick the areas that could really alter these long-term trends so that you can get to the long game and then bring to bear all of those advantages that the United States has. And just to add one one point here, I mean, the, the tricky situation that we find ourselves in now is that we have to move quickly in a variety of areas to, for instance, shore up a balance of power in the Western Pacific that I think is threatening to invite Chinese aggression. But you have to do so in a way that doesn't provoke the very aggression that you're trying to avoid. This is always a challenge in dealing with an insecure and potentially aggressive power. Countries can be both insecure and aggressive at the same time. And, and, and so this is certainly the, the case with China today. And so just to, to give one sort of concrete manifestation of this, I think we need to be much more in the vein of speak softly and race like hell to improve our capabilities and our allies' capabilities, and less in the vein of shout loudly and go slow on defense reforms and defense investments. I'm going to jump ahead. I just can't restrain myself. Uh, this is where we've fallen short, I, I think, so far. And, and so I, this is one of the reasons I'm actually somewhat ambivalent about Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. It's not at all clear to me how this actually helps Taiwan defend itself. It's not clear to me how this helps us resist Chinese aggression in the Western Pacific. What it does do is drive home for China the fact that more and more countries are becoming more and more willing to treat Taiwan 
as an independent country in all but name, which is certainly what it looks like when you have the Speaker of the House make an official visit to Taiwan. And so we have to we have to avoid getting ourselves in a situation where we are giving China lots of reason to think that it should move sooner rather than later without actually shoring up the capabilities we would use to deter or defeat that sort of attack. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a certain amount of discussion and I've participated in it myself in some things I've written about strategic ambiguity with regard to the defense of Taiwan. But in reality, you know, whatever you think of the declaratory policy of strategic ambiguity, the much more important thing is to make sure that Taiwan has the kind of capabilities it needs to defend itself and also that it's uh, doing everything, not just having capabilities supplied to it, but also that it itself is making more of a, an effort to you know, really shore up its defenses. There's been a very, very long period of time, you talk about this actually in the book, in which Taiwan has neglected its own defenses, and notwithstanding the hectoring it was getting from some of us in the Department of Defense and elsewhere, but they do seem to be trying to, to remedy that. But obviously, you know, the United States has a important role to play here as well in terms of the provision of capabilities. What about the the Biden administration? How would you kind of grade them out? I mean, they began, I thought, reasonably well with a, a meeting with the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor in Alaska, where I thought uh, Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, kind of kind of gave as good as they as they got in the sense that they were treated, I would say, to a, a kind of exchange of unpleasantries at the outset by the. Uh, their Chinese interlocutors, and they kind of pushed back pretty hard, making clear they weren't going to put up with that kind of rhetorical bullying. Uh, but they also had pre-cooked, you know, some sanctions with the EU right before that, which went right into effect after that meeting in Alaska, having to do with Hong Kong. And so I, I thought they got off to a pretty good start. But how would you guys assess how they're doing? Well, um, I, I hate to be the, the academic sitting on the sidelines, throwing stones at the people that are actually in the arena doing the hard work of crafting American foreign policy. Um, and I, I actually think in some ways it, it might be a little early to tell because I think the Biden administration has put in place the, the beginnings of what could be a viable alternative order that provides a great strategy to get tough with China. I mean, you have economically this sort of loose economic block forming around that's anchored by the G7 that controls more than half the world's wealth, where they're developing new trade and investment standards that implicitly either pressure China or exclude it outright there. Uh, you know, and then militarily, they have the idea that defense analysts have been talking about for a long time, which is trying to stand up strategic porcupines around China. So that conquest becomes a no go. But the problem is, it's just really hard to get those things implemented. And that's ultimately where I think administrations should be graded. It's easy to, you know, write some defense strategies, but it's much harder to actually do the hard work of getting allied buy-in as well as public buy-in. And one area of major concern is just with the defense budget, because so much of this is going to require a, a quick injection of substantial funds to procure all of the weapon systems that we need to put around the Taiwan Strait right now to shore up the military balance there. And that's an area where, you know, the defense budget is declining when you, once you adjust for inflation, which is remarkable, given that we have a war going on in Europe, could have a crisis in the Middle East if Iran gets breakout capacity with its nuclear arsenal and could have a crisis in East Asia if this Taiwan situation escalates. Although, to be fair, the Congress has appropriated or authorized, I should say, both last year and this year, 
significantly more for defense than the administration's asked for. Yeah, I think I think you're starting to see more urgency around these questions. And so I, I'd, I'd make two points about this. So one is that I, I think the direction of travel has been pretty good under this administration. It, it is the urgency that in some cases has been lacking. I think there has been good progress in um, working with Japan and Australia and other regional allies to think about potential regional contingencies. I think there's been good progress in terms of bringing together creative geopolitical groupings like AUKUS to push back against Chinese influence. I think there's been good work on sort of nascent and informal semiconductor alliances and tech partnerships in the way that Mike talked about. I, I think the the challenge is kind of like, well, on what timeline is this stuff going to make a difference? And that's really where the defense issue becomes critical. The, the U.S. has interesting defense investments and reforms underway meant to allow it to maintain a military edge in the Western Pacific. Taiwan has a very promising defense strategy that it is kind of adopting at the moment to, to turn the island into a porcupine. The problem is that both of these approaches look like they're meant to bear fruit in the early 2030s. And if you think that we've got a decade, then that's great. If you think that we have three to five years, perhaps at most, that, that's more problematic. And I think you're starting to see among U.S. officials a growing realization that this is not a 2035 problem. This may not even be a 2025 problem. And, and so a couple of years ago, there wasn't a lot of public discussion about the prospect of a Chinese move on Taiwan during the 2020s. Then at the beginning of 2021, uh, the commander of Indo-PACOM said maybe it's a 2027 uh, problem. More recently, you had the director of national intelligence of Real Haines say that the threat to Taiwan was going to be acute throughout this decade. Now, most recently, just a couple of days ago, there is uh, sort of uh, off the record commenting to the New York Times about the potential for a Chinese move on Taiwan within the next 18 months. Everybody's timeline is getting more compressed as the dangers ratchet up in the Taiwan Strait. And, and so the question is not simply, do we have the right policies? It's, will we get there quickly enough in implementing them? You know, Hal, you were saying that you were somewhat ambivalent about Speaker Pelosi's trip. It does seem that that, that there was some leaking in the Biden administration to preclude her from going. And I just wonder whether it might not have been better if she just shown up and had her meetings and then left without all of the hand wringing that went on in the United States before the fact, because we had seven Republicans uh, and Democrat. I think were there any Democrats in that Codell? I can't remember, but we had seven United States senators there last fall. Uh, I think it was Codell Cornyn, and it came, it went. Uh, you know, people like us who care about these issues, you know, made note of it, but it didn't elicit the kind of uh, huge hoo-ha. Would it, would it have been better in your view if everyone had just kind of kept their powder dry and let this play out without all of the public uh, drama? I, I think so. I think the, the drama, the will she or won't she prior to the trip didn't help. I mean, it, it raised the profile of the trip. It, it gave the Chinese more time to prepare and figure out exactly how they wanted to respond and, and how high they wanted to turn up the coercion dial. And, and so if, if Pelosi was going to go, I think it would have been better just, just to go and just, just to arrive there and, and just to, to do it. I, I think that, you know, once the news leaked, 
the administration was kind of in a tough spot on this because to explicitly tell her, or I guess ask her would be the better way of putting it, not to go, well, one, she might have gone anyways. And, and two, once you do that, you get all of the negative effects of being seen to cave to Chinese pressure. At the same time, the way that the trip got so much advanced publicity also raised the costs of that trip happening from Beijing's perspective. And so we ended up in a little bit of a worst of all worlds scenario on this one for precisely the reasons you mentioned. We've been talking with Michael Beckley and Hal Brands, the authors of Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, published by W.W. Norton. And publication date, guys, I think is August 16th. That's right. So um, you, you can uh, pre-order it now from uh, Amazon or your local bookseller. But it's been great having both of you on. It's been a great conversation. And I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Shield of the Republic. Thanks for having us, Eric.